We do have a ton to get through in this episode. Common sense is finally prevailing. There was controversy this month, Dave. I'm not particularly excited by that. Secrets and things on set. I haven't told them anything. I think this is just good times all round. Every Doctor Who is liked by somebody and that's a really good thing. Davo, my Doctor. I know we disagree on this one. First world problems, Dave. I get why fans are asking those questions. Oh gosh, that's actually quite a lot to talk about. It doesn't compute. It's the elephant in the room. That's okay. Fandom versus the BBC. The cardinal sin. Moving along. Lunch. Hello, I'm Dave. And I'm Rob. And welcome to the Doctor Who Show's flagship main podcast show for August of 2022. Rob, I'm back. How are you? (laughs) Dave, you're back. Hallelujah, you're back. That's so exciting. (laughs) Because I was just saying on Twitter, we haven't actually recorded for two months. Yes, yes, that's true. I I have been physically away for four weeks. And we got a few things in the can before I went, or sometime Mm. before I went, so that Mm. I wouldn't have to, you know, be trying to wrap up work and pack my bags and get away and, and record a whole bunch of podcasts. Yeah. So we've given that illusion that you've been around a bit more than you actually have been. Yes, no, you, you, you have. It's all it's all very, very clever. Very, very um <laughs> well well done. Thank you to Dylan for filling my chair very, very well. I must admit when I saw the topic he'd come up with, I was a little jealous because I wouldn't have minded <laughs> being part of that chat. But no, it was really fun and really good to be a listener every so often. Yeah, I said to him, I said, look, uh, we've had seven years to get there, Dylan, and we haven't done it yet, so please have it. Have it as a topic. We are, of course, talking about Dennis Spooner. Yes, no, that was that was really good. Um, but you've had Mike Sulko on for a very good primary sources. Oh, an excellent one. It, it was. It was very good. Uh, you, we've had a couple of very fun list makers, but we're here in August to talk about, well, Revenge of the Cybermen. I know, as voted for by the listeners. Yes, we once every so often we decide to go deep into one story. We put some nominations up. And the listeners voted for Revenge of the Cybermen, which is good. I think it's good we're doing a Tom. We haven't done a Tom for a little bit. Mm-hmm. I've thrown up a lot of Toms in the past. They've never got up. You throw up one Tom, Dave, and it bloody gets in. What's, what's, <laughs> what's the story there? Yeah, and I must admit, I have been watching Revenge of the Cybermen over the last couple of nights since I got back from Europe. And uh, my views have changed a little bit watching it. Ooh, I'm intrigued about that chat later on. That's a little bit of a teaser, but first we have some news. We are continuing to approach the end of the year when there is going to be some Doctor Who. Yes. And uh, Russell T Davies, who is as big a showman as we've seen in the show since at least J&T, has been out there teasing things. One particular question I think a lot of us have is we know David Tennant is back. We Mm -hmm. assume he's playing the Doctor of some sort, but... Is he the next Doctor? Is he an interim Doctor? Is he... Well, we're not quite sure. Russell T. Davies went and dropped the answer to that and then said he was just teasing. Let me let me quote from a um, an, an interview here. Yes. Saying, I've you been know, asked the question, who is David Tennant playing? A mysteriously forgotten excursion for the TARDIS in between Planet of the Ud and Stontaran stratagem? Mm-hmm. That was his answer, who this Doctor is. Then he's gone, or... Yeah. Maybe it's a multiverse thing. They're all the rage these days. Maybe this is the Doctor and Donna from Universe 557 and they all collide with ours. Which is something I thought you've speculated about, Rob. Yes. And then he said, then maybe, maybe, just maybe, this return is so impossible that it's actually an intricate illusion created by an old enemy of the Doctor's. Mm. My bet is that it's probably therefore going to be none of those. <laughs> 
Yeah, this is textbook RTD acknowledging what fans can see because they've obviously been out filming on the streets. Everyone can see tenants back. Everyone can see what's going on, you know, and what the fans have been speculating on and even throwing around several speculations himself, as you've just read. I mean, this is just fun for people to engage with this sort of stuff. Unlike, dare I say, Chibnall, who all through his run on the show was like, you you want the name of the next story? Go away. You know, <laughs> you, you want to know who's in it? It's a secret. You want to hear from me more often? I don't talk to you folks. Which is behaviour I found utterly bizarre all the way through his time in the big chair. And even as we sit here recording today, Dave, we don't even know the name of the centenary special. We just have to keep calling it the centenary special, you know, which is can't be much more than a month away from now. I mean, it can't be that spoilerific, can it, Chris? No, absolutely. We, we have absolutely no idea what's coming in that. We, as you say, we don't even know the title. I have got it on good authority that the title of the story is in a file, in a locked filing cabinet, in a disused lavatory with a sign on the door that says, Beware of the Leopard. <laughs> Very good. But, um, yeah, it, it's look, it, it is just so RTD. He's being very playful there. Look, we don't know if he's casually dropped a spoiler there in plain view or whether these are just three things he's got. Well, these are the very obvious things that people are throwing around, so it does no harm. I mean, the, these ideas are out there. Yeah. He's not adding anything to the conversation. He's just sparking it up and getting everybody excited again, which is, you know, really fun. I think that we all want to know exactly how the tenant doctor is is working in this. But we have some other rumours coming on as well. The Mirror has reported that the coming specials will feature, quote, a host of cameo appearances by former friends and companions to go alongside the already announced Janet Fielding and Sophie Aldred, mm-hmm. reprising their roles as Tegan and Ace. And they go on to report, and I don't know whether this is pure speculation or insight, that this will all take the form of a party arranged by Bradley Walsh's character, Graham O'Brien, who they say is also returning. Now, Graham's return has been very heavily speculated, and lots of people are sort of doing the nudge-nudge, wink-wink on that. Well, apparently he was seen on set, so, I mean... Yeah, and and look, uh, nobody's really denying it, so I think that his return makes sense. It's probable now whether he's actually playing... Graham, or whether he's just a, a, a vision, you know, a force ghost as the Doctor regenerates. Um, who knows? Maybe he was just coming along to say hi and wish them well. But look, I think we all sort of know there's probably going to be more than just Tegan and Ace, but they are slowly starting to build that all up. But again, it's sort of being done via leak and innuendo, and I think probably unapproved leak and innuendo rather than RTD just getting out there and having a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and I'll have more to say about the centenary special when we get to short topics. Oh, okay. Mm. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. So look, we have very little news on what's coming up, but lots of rumour and gossip. It's not far away. We're in August. Uh, Well, we're in September next week, so it's not actually far away. We're going to get a landslide of publicity probably probably about the time we record our next episode, I reckon. I'd say so, yeah. Because we're in this weird period where we're we're talking about the centenary special, we're talking about Tenant recording three specials that come after the centenary special, and we're talking about what Shooty Gatwa might or might not be doing after that. 
Yes. And, it, and it's all happening simultaneously. It gets very confusing at times. The bit of news I have here is uh, an actress called Rose Eiling Ellis might be joining Doctor Who as Shooty's companion, obviously once we get past the Tenant specials, because she has recently quit EastEnders after playing a character called Frankie Lewis, which I'm sure means an awful lot to people in the UK, but <laughs> nothing much to us here in the rest of the world. Nothing to me, no. No. Now, in itself, that shouldn't mean much. I mean, Chris Marshall left Death in Paradise, and he was meant to be the next Doctor, and that never happened. But... As well as leaving EastEnders, she's apparently just started following Shudi Gatwa, Russell T. Davis, and the casting director of Doctor Who, Andy Pryor, on Instagram. And she's also said there's going to be an announcement about her future soon. So it's sort of tipping people towards thinking, well, this could possibly be true. Although in the past 20 minutes before coming on air, she's apparently been on Sky News saying there's no truth to it. It was just a rumour that started on Twitter and it got bigger and bigger. I'm not sure whether that's her trying to pull the story back or what. Because, I mean, quitting EastEnders, following all the Doctor Who people and having a big announcement. It sounds like she's coming. And the bigger aspect of this is I'm, I'm not sure you're familiar with Rose Eiling Ellis at all Dave because I certainly wasn't before this no no I wasn't she is actually a deaf actress so it would give us a deaf companion okay mm. uh, well look there's some reasonable speculation there she's denied it who are we to judge that she's just denying it until she announces it herself but given the uh, the whole Instagram thing you know the way they've done some other announcements that's not impossible yeah yeah it's like she's been rumbled and now she's just trying to pull it back because as someone said on twitter when when someone said oh look she's saying there's no truth in the rumor someone quoted andrew garfield saying i'm not in the next spider-man movie <laughs> no 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 no. <laughs> it's interesting because i did hear um in a few weeks ago that the reason why the shitty gatwa announcement was so sudden and so out of the blue and so uh, rushed in some ways was apparently because it was leaked and journal was about to break the story so they did rush to get in first uh, this feels like maybe if people are speculating they're trying to go the other way and damp it down but it look she could be telling the truth and as I say who are we the doubter yeah it did help that RTD and Shooty were about to appear on that red carpet too at that awards later that afternoon that, yes, that seemed to tie in marvellously well yes that is true hmm now, Dave, you have a uh, another news story. Yes, very exciting news. Actual news. This isn't speculation, and I'm very happy about it. After a bit of a pause in the Blu-ray run, we have had it confirmed that finally there will be a black and white season and indeed a Hartnell season out on Blu-ray, and that is going to be season two. There are so many classics in that season, so many of my personal favourites, my favourite Dalek story, another really good Dalek story, the second wittiest story in the history of Doctor Who, one of the best character pieces in The Rescue. Uh, there's just so much good television in that. It's probably my favourite TARDIS team, the Doctor, Ian Barber and Vicky. These stories all cleaned up are going to be really, really fun to watch. And the thing that I really like, and one of the things that I enjoy in fandom, having been around fandom now for some decades, mm -hmm. is seeing other fans discover the things that I love and yeah. loving them too. When I see fans who have re started reading the new adventures, for example, and discovering stories I loved when I was a new fan back in the 90s, it's always great. And when I 
see people discovering the Hartnell era and going, hey, this is really good. Where has this been? Hey, this doctor's really good. I had no idea. I always love that. And I think that, I think we sometimes don't appreciate that not every fan out there has seen every story of Classic Who and every story of New Who and has the DVDs and has the Target novels and can recite the discontinuity guide by heart. And <laughs> You know, there are, there are a lot of fans who have got gaps in their knowledge and gaps in what they've seen and didn't go out and buy all the VHSs and the DVDs and haven't seen every story. And so they are discovering things as they're released. Oh, there are podcasters like that, not just fans, but people podcasting and they come on and say, oh, I've seen this for the first time. And and I always sort of s- start for a moment and think, oh my God, I saw that 30 years ago. Then I realise, hey, not everyone's the same as you, Rob, and it might be interesting to hear a different point of view. No, absolutely. And if you're somebody who has grown up with New Who and now you're sort of exploring Doctor Who because, you know, you've really got into the fandom and you're going back, you maybe are only seeing classic stories as the Blu-rays come out, mm. which is a you know really wonderful thing. So look, I'm, I'm excited for myself. They're really good stories that I'm really keen to see. I'm excited for other people discovering Hartnell. Now, I do understand they have said that the two missing episodes of The Crusades will not be animated, which, look, it makes sense. I think they've been very clear in the past that they can't afford to do animations out-of-the-box set budget. Yeah. They, they need to be able to offset the cost of making the animations with their own release, where they can recoup some of that cash. Yeah, because they were getting money off the US for that. Yes, they were getting co-funding from the US to start with, which helped. But but if they animate Power of the Daleks and then give it a DVD release, they can sell some copies and get some cash back that is directly that directly pays for that project. Whereas all the budget to make the Blu-ray is basically eaten up with everything else they do, and they couldn't then spend thousands of extra pounds animating episodes unless they were going to hike up the price of every box set by another 10 pounds or something yeah which just wasn't going to happen so look i i get it i I, i'm not shocked i don't mind it look i'm very familiar with the crusade i've got the audios i know the story i understand that for people who've never seen it before that will be disappointing and for people who are real fans of the animations that will be disappointing but I have said for a long time now, I don't want all of these 60s box sets left until the end because they haven't got animations to go with them. It's time to start getting these stories out, and I'm glad they are. It is, but, uh, you know, despite the fact that this season includes the uh, the Stephen and Vicky TARDIS team, which I quite enjoy, I'll just quietly say I've been waiting for that Davo season 20 to come out for about the last two bloody releases now. <laughs> when is the Davo season 20 going to come out? They were recording the segments for it before COVID, Dave. That's true. He's only got one out, hasn't he? Yes. Mm, yeah, it must be too soon. Oh, it has to be. It has to be. Yeah. Mm. But I do like the idea of season two. Yeah, no, look, I'm, I'm very keen for season 20 and indeed even more 21. But uh, look, we'll get them all eventually. And it's good to know that they are starting to come back down the pipeline again. Indeed. And another bit of rumour, gossip, set news from you, Rob. Yeah, this is a really small one, so I'll touch on it briefly. It relates to the... Um the centenary special that is coming up the mirror has reported that this episode will see jody get into a lot of other doctor outfits i'm not sure how this will actually happen but the the second doctor's trousers get a, a mention the fourth doctor's scarf davo's celery 
Sly's question mark jumper and the 10th Doctor's tie. I, I don't know whether she's just playing dress up in a scene or something, but a, apparently this is going to be a thing. And I've seen some people poo-poo this, Dave, saying, oh, this is the series still trying to convince us that Jodie's a real Doctor by, you know, making a dress up in all these past bits of clothing. And and that that's just nuts. I mean, she is the Doctor, you know, whether people like it or not, to, to paraphrase <laughs> to, to Colin Baker. Yes, yeah, yeah. This seems to be a spin on how some some doctors i think have tried on old costumes in that in their debut story whereas she's going to be doing in her, in her farewell story that's that's quite interesting it's a nice sort of inversion but um otherwise i'm not thinking it's a, a major aspect of the special it'll be nice to see i guess and again i've got more to say about the centenary special when we get to short topics yeah, my two theories are one that it's some pre-publicity stills that she was taking that people have assumed is in the episode, oh, but might yep. just have been for, for media consumption. That would make sense to me. Uh, my other assumption is that it would be a dream-type sequence Ooh, um, yep. or, or, or something like that sequence in Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS, I think it was, where they, they drop in the, the background images of all the different Doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it could be something like that. But, yeah, look, who knows? Yes, who knows? <laughs> Short topics are up. Short topics, Dave, and you've got the lead. I have. I have obviously been away, and I did do some Doctor Who content whilst I was on holiday because I'm a fan and I'm sad like that. <laughs> uh, look, listeners who have been listening for a long term will know that something I'm sort of not actively trying to do, but semi-actively trying to do, sometimes coincidentally doing, is visiting all of the settings for all of the 60s historicals. I love my 60s historicals. I think there's some great stories. They really sort of inspired a love of history in me that still lasts. And, and I think it's you know more that love of history that's getting me to some of these locations. But yeah. uh, and nevertheless, I am. And previously, in the last couple of years, I've ticked off the Romans. And I've ticked off the Aztecs. And as of last week, I have ticked off the Mythmakers because I went to Troy. Wow. That's huge. It really was huge. Now, fortunately, as an Australian, it's uh, just the other side of the Dardanelles from Gallipoli. Mm. So I was able to do a tour that went over a couple of days and did Gallipoli and Troy. So that was a perfect tour for me to go on. And and let me just say Gallipoli, for, for those who aren't familiar with Gallipoli, and a lot of people outside Australia aren't, it is the location of a very famous defeat and battle during World War One and um, campaigning, which Australia fought. And been very, very much linked with the, the forging of the Australian spirit and soul in, in, in war. It's a very big part of our national story, Gallipoli, during World War One. I. I was going to say, in much the same way that Americans revere the Alamo, even though the Alamo was a big defeat. Yes, or Dun- Dunkirk similar. for the British. Yes. Yeah, very similar sort of thing. So, look, I, I went to Gallipoli and, and I'll just say I was amazed at somewhere so spectacularly beautiful could have seen such absolute horror it was just breathtaking in 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 both ways but troy was equally fascinating uh, we were shown around the the ruins by a trained archaeologist who has spent his life studying troy mm-hmm. and helping to excavate troy so really knew his stuff and he he went through sort of all the different cities and versions of troy that they've discovered going right back 5000 years ago to the original mud brick fishing village where where troy was up to Troy 7, which is the one from the Tale of Homer. And and you can see part of the wall 
of Troy. And you can see where next to the wall they've built fortification towers out of a slightly different material, clearly sort of built up mm-hmm. in preparation for the war. They've got evidence of where in Troy 6 there was the wall and then a lot of large houses outside the wall and some small storage inside it. And they can see where, it, as part of Troy 7, all the houses have been moved inside the wall and they've built big storage uh, units and big storage areas inside the wall to prepare again for, the, for that sort of war. So you can mm. see a lot of that sort of evidence. You can see where the sea would have been. And now, obviously, there are mud flats because over 3,000 years, the rivers have changed the course of the mud and, yeah, and everything. Yeah. So you can't quite see that. Uh, you can see where the main gate would have been. And the main gate's been blocked up by different stones, possibly after the horse was brought in or after the fall of Troy. Um, so look, you know, we don't know if the horse is real or that was got purely an invention by Homer, but if it happened, that's the gate it would have gone through. Mm-hmm. So yeah, really, really fascinating stuff and, and just a level of detail that I wasn't expecting. So I, I have seen the setting of the Mythmakers. That was very cool. <laughs> You've been to all these places the production didn't actually go. No, that's <laughs> You've absolutely been to the real right. place. Yeah. That's absolutely right. I have got two to go. One of them is the gunfighters, which is, is in some ways easy to do. You just go to America and drive to Tombstone. Mm. I almost did it the last time I was on a road trip in America, but it is basically a day's drive there and a day's drive back. Yeah. Just, just to sort of go, okay, that's the that's the OK Corral. It's a bit out of the way, yeah. It's very out of the way. You'd really have to sort of dedicate a couple of days or pay money to sort of fly in look around and go, okay, this is Tombstone, and fly out again. Um, And look, I will do one of those at some point in my life, but uh, that's a little way. And the other one's Marco Polo. Mm. I I have it on the authority of the Australian Intelligence Services that I'm not going to be led into into China (laughs) in the next little while. Um, We won't go into details about why that is on on live air, but um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I can't see myself visiting uh, Peking for a while. Let's just put it that way. So that'll probably be the last. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> other Doctor Who related stuff I did sort of put the word out there that if any podcasters are in London uh, whilst I'm there it would be lovely to catch up and look we always sort of think of UK podcasters as all being in or near London and the truth is actually none of them are yeah um, you know they all live in various far fun places and a couple did reach out and say you know if you're going to be up in the north come and visit me and um, sorry Suki I was nowhere near the north um, yeah. and sorry Mark I was nowhere near Exeter but uh, Hayden Gribble from the Diddly Dumb podcast did actually come down to London specifically to have lunch with me which nice. was really lovely it was great to catch up with Hayden and just just talk about Doctor Who and life, the universe, and everything. But he did show me around the BFI. Right. Now, I didn't know that the BFI was a, a real place. I thought that they were an organisation that hired venues when they did activities. But no, they're a real place with vaults and studios and theatres. and. Oh, yeah. It's a very impressive stuff. thing. Yeah. It's a very impressive thing. So uh, although there was no Doctor Who event on at the time, Hayden did show me around the BFI which was very, very cool. Uh, and also showed me next door to the BFI where they filmed the location filming for Frontier in Space. Uh, so <laughs> that was really cool. As a pert we found, I got to see that. And uh, I did actually look at a few other Doctor Who filming locations whilst I was there. Look, again, I saw the classics I've seen before, Westminster Bridge from Dalek Invasion of Earth and the Steps of St. Paul's from The Invasion. But this time I did actually find I was only about two bus stops away from the tube station where they filmed uh, Operation Golden Age in Invasion of the Dinosaurs. 
Oh. So I went those extra two stops specifically just to see that. Why not? <laughs> I hope you got some photos. I did get some photos. Yep, they're all up on my Twitter feed. So look, a bit of Doctor Who whilst I was away. That is awesome. I, I'm, I'm so jealous. It would have been lovely to do all of that stuff, particularly catching up with someone like Hayden. Um, you know, second time you've done that. Great stuff. Yeah, no, always, always fun to catch up with um, our friends from other podcasts in real life. Yes. Now, Dave, while you were gone last month and I was recording with Dylan Rees, we, we had a lot of fun putting that episode together. But between recording it and it going out about a week later, we lost two pretty big Doctor Who people in the form of Bernard Cribbins and David Warner. And I actually put a little sort of disclaimer, disclaimer is probably the wrong word, but a little message at the start of the podcast that, hey, we know that this has happened, but <laughs> the episode was recorded before it happened. So I thought now might be a good time to, to mention it because, I mean, Warner going was a real shock um, to me because although he was quite advanced in years at, you know, 80 years old, he seemed very active at fan events. He's He's been dating Lisa um, Bowerman, who's, who's quite a bit younger than him, doing a lot of big finish and so on. It, it wasn't really something, I, I, I guess, unless people in his inner circle knew, something that anyone was really anticipating. I mean, on last month's episode, Dylan and I were talking about the way he just recorded a 60th anniversary story opposite Chris Eccleston. So that's not coming out for another year and a bit. He'll still be sort of with us in a sense. Uh, and Bernard, meanwhile, at 93, he'd entered that sort of danger zone where I guess you can go at any time and it's not really a shock. Yeah. But but I think it still surprised fans because we'd all seen him, albeit in a wheelchair, but filming with David Tennant and, and such for these uh, Tennant specials. And then suddenly, you know, just click of the fingers, he's gone as well. Crazy. Yeah, no, they were both quite uh, surprising and, and, you know, sad moments. David Warner, I think, was the one that particularly hit me because he really is a an actor I love and admire. He is literally in my all-time favourite episode of Star Trek, that is Chain of Command, where he, he plays the, the character opposite Patrick Stewart in the famous There Are Four Lights mm. scene. And that's just... just wonderful wonderful television he's so good he's also in my absolutely favorite star trek movie uh the undiscovered country where he plays chancellor gorkon and again a a, a wonderful performance uh, i loved him in hornblower that's something that was really good and even just on the plane back from istanbul i started watching titanic and there he was again yeah and there's just so many things he's in so look he's he's amazing and, and yeah just a really strong presence bernard cribbins People have, you know, have a really big childhood association with Bernard Cribbins. Uh, I'm not one of those. The only things I'm really familiar with him in are Doctor Who. Um, obviously, the Dalek invasion of Earth 2150 AD was a big part of my childhood, so he's a very, you know, big part of that. Uh, I know he narrated the Wombles. Uh, I didn't know it was him at the time I was watching the Wombles, and I must admit I haven't seen the Wombles for about 35 years. So Same for me in that respect. I certainly watched it, but I didn't sit there as a five-year-old saying, that is Bernard Cribbins narrating it. <laughs> no, no. So, look, I, I think he was um, a much bigger part of uh, life in the UK because he did a lot of those variety shows and a lot of those talent shows and, and everything. So I think we kind of missed that. But it, it was a shock, even though, as you say, he was 93. He was just such an alive person. Very you know, much Very, so. very with the, much with the sparkle in the eye. So, yeah, that was very sad. And, and again, I know particularly people in the UK who grew up with him would have been a real, a real wrench. Mm, absolutely so Rob moving past that sad news and, and back to uh, well I guess holiday related news I mm. often as you know 
use holidays as a chance to reread a couple of new adventures or missing adventures because frankly it's a really good opportunity to read them and they're very light so it's very easy to pack rather yes. than the, the big non-fiction books that I normally read and weigh about a, you know, half a kilo each. <laughs> um, um, so look, I did take the opportunity to, to reread Goth Opera, the very first missing adventure, which is a Davo missing adventure. Mm-hmm. Now, about a year ago, I read Blood Harvest, which is the tie-in book, or the tie-in new adventure with that. And I thought at the time, I really should go and read Goth Opera as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I never got around to it. But uh, someone I follow on Twitter who goes by the name of Lord Mestor, uh, which is an interesting <laughs> name, but... Um, hello, if you're listening. Uh, hello, if you're listening, your royal slugness. Um, <laughs> he has been going through and reading all of the Virgin books in order and not that long ago got to Goth Opera, and he has rated that as one of his all-time favourites. And I think at the moment he has it as his absolute favourite missing adventure. So I sort of thought, well, I definitely need to get on and read it. And it was a really fun read. It's by Paul Cornell. It's Mm -hmm. got the Fifth Doctor, Nyssa and Tegan. It's set partly in Tasmania, which is interesting. Includes uh, includes the Fifth Doctor playing a charity match with David Boone, which is kind of cool. Um, (laughs) uh, But it it has vampires in it. And it's just a really fun read. And there was a lot of it that I didn't remember. There was some imagery and some scenes I absolutely remembered, but a lot of the climax I actually had forgotten. So it was really cool to read that again and was really enjoyable. I read it about two years ago. Oh, yes. And my memory of it from two years ago is that it's one of those books that doesn't particularly feel like a TV story of that era it feels like a much bigger thing to my mind. Oh, there's absolutely no way that it could have been done on television. It hops no. all over the place. And, and and the climax certainly couldn't have been done on television. And even some of the gore, and mm, some of the blood mm. and guts, I mean, you're dealing with vampires there. Um, you know, you couldn't have had scenes of people being decapitated. No. Um, you know, on, on, on you know, Tea Time in 1982. That just wouldn't have happened. So I, I think it's a really good example of taking... A TARDIS crew, and I think he wrote the TARDIS crew really, really well, and mm-hmm. they felt like that TARDIS crew, but taking them and doing a story that is of the era, but beyond what they could have done in the era, and I think that the Good Missing Adventures mix those two things together really well. Yeah, it's like Cornell took Darvel Evans at his word that these would be stories, you know, too, too big for the small screen sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So that was really cool. I also reread the new adventure Bad Therapy by Matthew Jones. And uh, thank you to you and Mike Solko for giving me a shout out about, about my love for that book on the uh, on the primary sources last week. I did, did have a giggle when you said that. It was a bit cheeky, yes. And look, I've said before, this is probably one of my top five new adventures. Reading it again absolutely just reinforced how much I love that book. I'm not going to go into length about it now because I believe I'm going to be guesting on another podcast soon, chatting at length about it. Ooh, and I, uh, I will I will talk more about that if that happens. But look again, just a just a wonderful a wonderful story that captured McCoy's Doctor really really well. Had a really good adventure set in 1950s London, uh, but an, an adventure with themes moments and depth that could never have been done on television. I think even Russell T Davies with everything he has now and his ability to write touching and emotional television, he would have had to work really hard to uh, to have done this on screen. It's, it's something that really works best in novel form. 
Well, that's high praise. How many times have you read it now? Uh, this is the third. I read it once when it came out and once a little bit after that, but I haven't read it for a long time. So this is the first right. time in a long time I've read it. Okay. And uh, it, it really, really stood up there. And I discovered uh, afterwards that Matthew Jones actually went and wrote one of the Bernice New Adventures not long after when the when Virgin tried to sort of keep the range going without the Doctor after they lost the license. And they, they did for a year or two. Yeah. And uh, Matthew Jones apparently wrote one of them. Now, I, I haven't bought any of them. I think at the time I sort of switched to the BBC books and I was only about 18 at the time. So, yeah. you know, by the time you spent $20 on a BBC 8th Doctor novel and $20 on a BBC past Doctor novel, going and spending $25, $30 to get a copy of a Benny book that doesn't even have the Doctor in it was you know, a bit beyond me on my pocket money at 18. Exactly. Um, so I, I didn't do that range, but I have gone and bought on eBay the Matthew Jones book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also bought one by Mad Lawrence Miles. I mean, I'll read anything that Mad Larry has written because he's just such an entertaining writer. So I've bought two of them. If I like that, I might read more of the range. We'll see. Interesting. I mean, that that range is just sitting there ripe for the plucking if you want to do that. You know, you talk about other people getting into NAs and such recently. Here's an old range that you could get into. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. The one problem is, of course, it was a very limited print run. True. And so they are quite, quite rare. And they're not all up at the sort of, you know, two, three hundred dollars like a lung barrel or a dying days, but they can be sort of at the fifty, sixty, seventy dollar range. Ooh. So um I may not dive in and get them all in one go. <laughs> Big finish have had a crack at them. Maybe Big Finish is the way to do it. Yeah, that's something that occurred to me as well, and I actually had it down on my to do list to go and uh, look up what Big Finish has done and maybe do them as well. But I will I'll read the books first because I'm sort of inspired to do that at the moment. Very good. To round out short topics, Dave, I want to read a series of tweets I made back on August 8, because I know not all of our listeners are on Twitter, and even those who are on Twitter might not have seen this, because frankly, I want to put my money where my mouth is and actually say this out loud on the show, and we'll see where the cards fall when the centenary special comes out. So the tweets run like this, Dave. Renewed talk about the centenary special reminds me to plonk down my overriding thoughts on it here in advance. I predict the special will suffer from Rise of Skywalker Syndrome. Namely, there'll be a ton of stuff thrown at the screen in the hope that lots of stuff will somehow be a substitute to just having a sweetly crafted story to end the era on. And I base this on two things. One, who we know to be in the ep, plus all those who we aren't supposed to know are in the ep, (laughs) no spoilers, (laughs) creating an instant logjam of characters from the start. And two... The modern era of entertainment, which Chibnall has already riffed on pretty hard in the last couple of years, which has never heard the term less is more. And it's all about throwing so much at the screen that hopefully the audience is won over by volume rather than quality. So what I think we'll end up having is, oh, it's him and her and her and him and that other one. Oh, and it's them too. And gosh, they're doing this and that. And something else. Oh, and that too. And it's just going to be a dense mess of characters and ideas versus just being a good story. And do you know what? There's a kind of viewer who will be amazed by the volume of content and will be utterly mesmerized by this stuff. They'll declare it the greatest thing ever. But I fear for people wanting a solid story that sees the Doctor and her two loyal companions getting all the limelight and just going out on a good story. They're going to be overtaken by events and cameos and all manner of stuff being shoehorned in to create something that feels big and epic, 
but which I fear will ring hollow if you look too closely. So there, I will be using this in part when it comes time for the EP to air and for us to do the hot take episode on it. I will point back to what I was feeling here in advance and see just how close I was to predicting it. If I'm wrong, I'll say so on the next step. Stay tuned. That's a perfectly reasonable and valid theory based on the evidence we have. And indeed, as you point out, based on sort of media at the moment, it's not as though it's a Doctor Who thing. It's a kind of an everything thing. Yes. I was going to make a point that you then sort of went on to make yourself, which is that stuff like that can work, uh, certainly for certain people in the audience. And look, I walked out of Rise of Skywalker having gone... I was entertained. That was a lot of movie. I'm not quite sure what happened in it, but hey, <laughs> lots of stuff happened. And that was perfectly entertaining at two o'clock in the morning. Uh, yes, yes, when yeah. I went back and watched it and thought about it, I did go, this is a bloody mess. Yes. Um, but but not every viewer does that. Some of them just want to say there was a cool lightsaber fight and I was entertained and move on with their lives. And you're right, a lot of people will do that if that happens. That's okay. Yeah. I have little else to say about something that is, I mean, literally speculation. We will see. Yeah. I, I just want to throw it out there. I'm putting my money where my mouth is on this one, Dave. No, fair enough. No one can mm. say you didn't try and call it. That's it. But did you call it right? We will find out. We will. <laughs> Rob, we're diving into Revenge of the Cybermen. We are. We are. We put it up for a vote. It clearly won. Here we are. It did. Uh, a couple of others gave it a run for its money. It wasn't locked in until the last day or two, but uh, it did have a strong finish and it did win comfortably. This is a story that, well, look, I think a lot of people would say it's a very familiar story. Rob, what is it to you? How did you come to Revenge of the Cybermen? Before we ask what you think of it, how did you come to it? Oh, Dave, my, my story will be the same as many of the older listeners out there because I saw this as a BBC video release, pure and simple. You know, although it would have been on TV semi-regularly in Australia, this was the period before I became a real fan. So this is like 85-ish. I wasn't obsessively watching the TV every night to see every bit of Doctor Who I could. So it was my brother who got the video. Now, whether he had bought it or whether it was from the video store, I don't know. I know he owned it later on, and so did I, for that matter. I had my own collection of Doctor Who. He had his own collection of Doctor Who. We doubled up on tapes. It was bizarre. In the same household, there were two sets of the same videos. <laughs> um, but for this first time, it could have just been a rental. I seem to recall my parents were on holiday. We had the lounge room to ourselves. Probably got in a big Chinese meal and sat in the dark and watched it. And I thought it was a lot of fun as a 10-year-old. Yeah, look, my story's very similar. I was watching Doctor Who every night as it went out in the 80s as a kid. So I'm sure I saw it a couple of times at least on the ABC at 6.30 on a weeknight. Uh, the copy that we had at home, though, was definitely dubbed from the copy at the video store, that first video release, because right. I, I do remember it not having cliffhangers in it. Oh, um, and you know, even even now, the cliffhangers are always sort of a surprise. We're like, oh, that's right, there's a cliffhanger there. Um, <laughs> so look, it is it is a very familiar story. It was the first VHS to come out. It was out on DVD as sort of the middle of the set. I, I, I think it was in the first Blu-ray set to come out. And, and it is that obvious go-to story. If you want to do a Doctor Who story, well, okay, you want to do Tom because he's the most popular plastic Doctor. You mm -hmm. can't get the rights to the Daleks because. Terry Nation's a state of bastards. So, well, you go and get the Cyberman story. And there's one Tom Cyberman story. It's revenge. It's a really obvious go-to for a lot of people. And I think for that reason, it is very, very familiar. 
very, very accessible. Yes. Um, I'd be surprised if there are many, if any people out there in listener land who haven't seen this, um, potentially quite a lot. Yeah, well, certainly a lot of people voted for it. So I think they've seen it and they want to hear what we have to say. Well, shall I go first or shall you? Well, before we go first, I, I pulled out some interesting facts about the story, which don't really fit into talking about our feelings. They're just facts. Oh, well, I like facts. What, what if I throw them out there first? Go on. Dave, as you would know, this is the first story where gold is deadly to a Cyberman. Yes. And when you think about it, that's pretty extraordinary, given how many stories we'd already seen them in. But at the same time, they'd been gone for so long off the screens, you have to assume that maybe the writers were like, well, no eight-year-old today is going to remember them even being on TV the last time, let alone the finer details. You know, because this is pre-reference books, pre-internet, pre-everything. You know, you, you just didn't know that stuff. So this gold thing being introduced, yeah, fine. The second interesting fact is this is also the first story where the guys playing the Cybermen get to say their own dialogue. Isn't that extraordinary? Yes, yes that is interesting, yeah. yes. And also, it's the last time Kevin Stoney is in the series. He'd been Tobias Vaughn, of course, and Magic Mavic Chen in the past. <laughs> Conversely, it's the first time David Collins is in the series, and he'd go on to be in Robots of Death and Mordron Undead after this. So there's a little nice crossover there between Kevin Stoney and David Collins. So they're my three interesting facts about the story. Well, they are interesting, but why don't you keep going and tell us what you think of it? Well, Dave, I think the story has a reputation of being disliked uh, out there. I mean, the discontinuity guide you mentioned earlier in this episode on a separate topic, the discontinuity guide absolutely eviscerates this story. And I have no doubt if we scratch the surface out there, we will find fans who, who are much the same. But my experience with fandom around the time of making this podcast, you know, because we're talking to people on Twitter about it and so on, and even in some years prior, is that for whatever reason, whether it's that BBC video, whether people just like the Cybermen, whether it's just an early Tom performance that people remember warmly because his early performances are just amazing, there seems to be way more love for this story than received fan wisdom suggests there is. I think that's correct, yes. Yeah, should I go on? Please, yes. Well, okay. you've said what everyone else thinks of it. Rob, what do you think of it? <laughs> okay. Well, look, the Cybermen in this feel pretty deadly to my mind, and that's always a good thing in a Cyberman story. Two of them go down to Voga and take out a ton of people. It's like the Dalek in the modern series story, Dalek, when it goes on the rampage. You know, these guys just march along, taking out all and sundry on Voga. Of course, it's questionable why no one has a glitter gun or isn't just throwing gold at them, given they're surrounded by gold. But on the face of it, I find the Cybermen in this story have a goal. They, they want to blow the shit out of Voga because it's threatening to them, or what's left of Voga, I should say. And they're pretty deadly and ruthless in trying to reach that goal. So whereas a lot of Cybermen stories out there don't quite work, I find this works for me just fine because... These Cybermen have a goal. They're quite deadly. Yeah, I'm fine with it. I don't quite get the way either the Discontinuity Guide or Fandom in general really savage this. I think it's quite a good Cyberman story. Am I weird, Dave? No, I don't think you're weird at all. I think that that's a very natural way to feel about the story. And going into this recording, or going into my watch for this recording, I felt very much the same. I thought... 
you know what, this is an underrated story, it's a good fun story, I enjoy it, it's it's a comfy pair of slippers as you might say Rob, mm-hmm. it's entertaining, it's got a good villain, what's not to like, I mean okay it's not as heavy and dense as the Ark in Space and Genesis of the Daleks but not everything needs to be and this doesn't need to be and watching it back I didn't change that view, this is a very easy enjoyable story to watch i like this story but i did find myself having very mixed views on a lot of aspects on it there Mm -hmm. was a lot of this is really good but not this bit or this aspect of it's really good but not this one and as i watched it properly and, and again we come back to that thing we've discussed many times now on the podcast of the difference between putting Doctor Who on while you're eating dinner or doing the ironing and, and just sort of fami- letting a familiar story wash over you and watching for a podcast where you sit there, phone off and away, laptop away, mm. no distractions, and you watch it properly for the first time in a long time. And doing that, I did see its flaws. Its flaws are very, very real. And that probably brings me to the sort of the first big conversation point I have about it, which is the yes but and the the mixed aspect of it Mm. and that is how much of this doesn't quite feel like the production team that we're used to now the writer of this is a little bit ambiguous yes it's jerry davis on the credits but i think we know that the script he started with and the script that it finished off being are fundamentally different he wrote a story about very old school Cybermen and a space casino and all that sort of thing. And we ended up with uh, what we got on screen, which is a very long way from that. Which can I jump in and say, I've, I've read that too. And I thought that sounds an amazing thing. This casino is a front for the Cybermen. You know, I've seen Hinchcliffe say, Oh, you wrote this sort of old school Doctor Who story. I'm thinking, no, that sounds really cool. Wasn't there a Battlestar Galactica episode in the original series where people were going to a casino planet or something and the Cylons were behind it? Anyway, I digress. I thought it just sounded really good, Dave, (laughs) that that original story. Look, it absolutely does. But given that this was being done uh, with the uh, aim of trying to balance the budget a bit for season 12 and and reuse sets from the arc, I think it just could never have been made the way that they intended. Now, when you get something like Genesis of the Daleks, which is a really good story. Everybody loves the script and they go, oh, but I don't like Terry Nation as much as I like Robert Holmes. Therefore, I'm just going to say Robert Holmes wrote all the good bits of this, despite mm. the fact that it's a template by the numbers Terry Nation script. Yeah. And it probably is a Terry Nation story that Robert Holmes didn't do a lot of writing on. Look, sure, he polished it, but you know, I, I think that people oversell Robert Holmes because they like him and don't like or don't admire Terry Nation. Fools. Mm. <laughs> On this one, it's almost certainly a very, very heavy Robert Holmes rewrite, possibly almost a page one rewrite in some aspects. Mm. Certainly the changes to the Cybermen, and I think the stuff that works least about the Cybermen are absolutely Robert Holmes rewrites. And uh, nobody ever talks about that because we all love Robert Holmes. I'm not, I'm not here to stab Robert Holmes, but mm. you've got to say this is not Robert Holmes' best piece of rewriting. Oh, No. No, I, I, I don't think so. Um, and and nor is it Philip Hinchcliffe's best piece of production. Now, you look at Ark in Space, you look at Genesis, you look at Terror of the Zygons, which was made all in the same block. This is not as good as those are on the set. The sets are clearly reused. I like them, they work well, but there's a lot of cheap stuff going on here. There's a lot of really cheap effects going on here that are 
frankly below the standard of the Hinchcliffe years. And the direction on location, Michael Lee Bryant, who I think is a fantastic director, he was a young, up-and-thrusting director determined to make his mark. His location filming is superb. It's fantastic. He's not getting the best out of his actors or getting the tones right, I think, in a number of scenes on set. So I think this is a very, on the one hand, but on the other hand type of story. And I think Holmes, Bryant and Hinchcliffe are all below their own very, very high standards. All right. Uh, I've, I've got comments then on Wookie Hole and on, on the set itself. I think Wookie Hole does look great. I mean, location filming always looks good, especially when they're using film. But to me, this this location is next level, you know, being being underground. What's maddening, though, are some scenes are done against CSO. And you think, oh, my God, that's just a quick scene with two guys in it. You couldn't have fired that off on location, just found like a little little alcove and just filmed that while you were there. Oh, no, no, no. You know, so that that's disappointing with the location. And look, while we're, while we're talking about location, Dave, the Michael E. Bryant story of being locked in at night to do his initial recce for how he'd like to set up his shots and he sees a scuba diver go past and go for a bit of a dive. And then later the Wookiee Hole manager tells him that no one else was in there. He was locked in on his own and that a young man had drowned scuba diving recently. That's got to be BS, doesn't it? I mean, (laughs) the the manager was surely pulling his leg. He'd let someone else in to go off for a cheeky scuba dive at night and was just making this up for Michael E. Bryant. Sure. Surely, yes. I've I've always assumed so, yes. But it's a good story. (laughs) It is a good story. Sorry, let me just just say in response to what you said before you go on. I I totally agree. I think the Wookiee Hole stuff is really, really good. And you get this sense with the location filming because, as you said, they did basically lock the crew in for the night they said right we're gonna the last the last tourist is out we're locking the door it's yours to play with till the next tourist arrives first thing in the morning and that seems to have given the cast and the crew a real freedom to take some time and to breathe and to let this flow a lot more naturally and and brian does proper three-dimensional direction he uses all three levels of the, uh, the location, which is something he does yes. in Blake 7 as well. And, and David Maloney's also very good at it as well in that sort of area. He, he says, right, I'm not just, do, have, you know, I haven't just got right, left and front back. I've got up and down and he uses it well. And, and yeah, I think they, they make remarkable use of it. Oh, I'm thinking of a scene where Vogons are firing at Cybermen. Vogons are up quite high and you're sort of looking over their shoulder down at Cybermen. Yes. And, and then, but you can see beyond the Cybermen too, quite a ways as well. And it's like, oh, that's a huge shot. That's right. He's not just shooting up. He's putting the cameras up and shooting down, which is very unusual. Absolutely. Now, look, I mentioned, I'd, I'd mentioned the reuse of the Ark in Space set as well. I actually love that this story reuses the Ark in Space set. It, it even gives some reasoning in the story for why it's still around, which is which is great. It's not trying to be a completely different place and pull the wall. It's saying, yes, this is the same place, you know, and, and something comparable would be the space station in the long game in series one, showing up again in Bad Wolf Parting of the Ways. Far from feeling cheap, which I think is the, the inclination people reach for when they hear about this sort of recycling, 
I feel it gives a sort of a continuity to the universe that I really like. They've they've been at this location at one time, and now they're in this location at another time. I actually really like it, even though it's a cost-saving method, Dave. I agree with you, and certainly as a kid particularly, I love the idea that this was one big flowing story and they were coming back. And, and the yes. sets are really good. Those corridors look like really cool space corridors. It is very effective. However, there are parts of that set that are very, very cheap. Watching them now... I think it's I think it's the stuff that's been redressed where they've had to put in an extra console here or an extra prop here just to make it look a little bit different or because the story needs something a little bit different. And I do think that that is a little bit more obvious. I think that if this was sort of in some other seasons, if this was in season 15, I wouldn't blink. Mm-hmm. But it is because Hinchcliffe has set such a high standard for his era. And we have had stuff like Terror of the Zygons. We have had stuff like Ark in Space in this, this production block. It does look a little bit like the cheapy. It does, it does. But again, I'll, I'll throw up. You know, Roger Murray Leach is is the designer here, the set designer, and he's built the set up off the studio floor, so that we're not looking at the studio floor when we're filming down. He's actually built it up, so it does look like a real sort of place. And when doors open, you can see the rooms beyond. They're not CSO or or something you can't quite make out. It feels like a really great set in in spite of what you're saying. No, look, it does. And I'm, I'm not trying to give it too big a whack. I'm, I'm just saying it's mm. below, I think, the standards of a lot of the other stories in that era. Sure. But I, I think the other problem is as well, watching it closely, but watching it closely on Blu-ray on a very large television, Yeah. you do also perhaps notice stuff that I haven't noticed before. As a kid, I remember the floors being these really good-looking grills with little holes in them. Now I can watch them on Blu-ray and it's clearly a piece of white floor with grey circles sort of painted slightly roughly on it. Um, yes. You know, you, you can see some of those those sort of faults again. I think that is perhaps a problem with the uh, the way we're watching it now. Yeah, it's, it's like a non-slip surface or something, not what you originally thought it was. Yes. And look, if I can continue the theme of production and, and loop back as well to something that you opened with, which is the Cybermen. Yes. I think that the Cybermen here look really, really good. I love the look of the Cybermen. I love the built-in head guns. I think they're really effective with the little spark shots. And again, as a kid, that was a really, really cool thing. Those shots of them just striding through Voga, wasting every Vogon that comes near them. You know, completely unstoppable are really good shots. I, I think you're right. These are really effective, driven Cybermen that look great. And are acted very, very badly. Mm. Um, I think that there is no doubt that Robert Holmes spiced up their dialogue to be a bit more dramatic and not to be as monotone and dull. And I clearly can imagine Robert Holmes getting Jerry Davis's script and going, this dialogue's boring, I'm going to juice it up a bit. And Jerry, <laughs> Jerry Davis going, no, they're emotional side he's going, well, it's emotional TV, I don't care. And, yeah. and, and you know, wanting to give them some actual conversational dialogue. I understand his instinct, obviously, as a fan. That doesn't quite work. But I, I don't mind that so much. It's kind of the, like, casual striding that you get around the place. Um, the one that just made me laugh out loud is where the Doctor's got the cyber bomb and he's threatening the cyber leader and trying to get him to talk. And the cyber leader does the big, gosh, to uh, hide the fact that he's sending the signal to his subordinate. Now, that made me chuckle. But then the subordinate getting it and sort of almost doing the body language of, oh, okay, down the corridor. That was just embarrassing. And I, I think that 
for a director who is really, really good in many ways, I think that Mike Lee Bryant didn't quite work out how he wanted his extras, his cyber extras, to uh, to perform. And sometimes they are just um, a little bit sort of... Um, they're yeah. not as bad as the quick mate, get out, Cybermen from Attack of the Cybermen. But... Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, there, there were a few times I did giggle at the Cybermen here, not because of the costume. Though. I think the costume's cool. Yeah, well, look again. This 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 is the thing too when it comes to Michael E. Bryant's direction. He hasn't got a lot to work with. Mm, the mm. Cybermen had been gone for so long. Like, what? When was their last appearance? Was it 60, 68 Maybe sixty nine invasion would would have been. Oh, of course, sixty nine. Still. It's a long time. It's back in the black and white era. They've they've gone a whole doctor between then. Pertwee doesn't encounter them. Um, there's a flashback in one of his stories. We don't include that. You know, so it's not even like he's he's got a lot to work with. Would he have even gone back and watched old tapes at the time? Probably not. No, there, there certainly wasn't the corporate memory uh, around the Cybermen that we kind of assume there would have been. Obviously, there wouldn't have been. So I, I think that he does miss a couple of tricks there. As I say, on location... He films them really, really well. I think the costumes look good. I think, though, that the uh, the mannerisms of them are not nearly as good as they could be, and in some cases are actually quite quite risable. Yeah. There's a few other aspects. I mean, I've been quite positive about the story, but, you know, I'll be fair. There's, there's a few other aspects that really overreach when it comes to what Doctor Who can do visually in this era. Things like, oh, let's have rockets firing <laughs> off Voga, and they reuse that US rocket launch that famously used to be in the MTV credits that everyone has seen a million times. There's the Saturn V launch, yeah. Yeah. And when the, uh, the the station is falling towards the planet, the effect is okay at first, but then you just sort of realise, oh, it's just some sort of <laughs> log it's rolling a, over, a, and yeah, over and over a, and over and over. A barrel being rolled and rolled. A barrel, rolled. yes. <laughs> look, look, again, as a kid, I did not notice that, and I thought it was really impressive. And again, that's who it's made for. And back in the mid-70s, we saw it a lot differently, literally and figuratively, because the TVs were smaller. Not everyone would have even been on colour back then. And it was kids watching the show. I get all of that. Uh, It sometimes feels a bit unfair when we watch it on a modern TV on Blu-ray. Yeah, look, it absolutely does. And to, to again, be fair and balanced, I forgive it as well, because I think the conclusion, the climax of the story, is really, really effective. You've got the sort of the double peril of the beacon coming towards Voga. You've got the rocket going who knows where. You've got the Cybermen doing what the Cybermen are doing. And then you've got a bit of action, a bit of sci-fi all happening. The Doctor and Sarah's dialogue is really good and really clever. And that's sort of bouncing around. The Doctor's like, no, 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 I've sorted it all. Oh, no, no, maybe I haven't. Oops, okay. You know, it's it's so effective. And then you get a big explosion and the rocket going. And I, I think it's a great climax. It really, really is a good adventure story. So I forgive the special effects there quite a bit, quite mm. a bit. But you're, you're, you're right. When you look at it critically as we do uh, now as a you know, mature... Uh, pair of men who are, who are watching it on Blu-ray. <laughs> Debatable. <laughs> Maturing years, at least. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, we're, we're not eight-year-olds watching it in 1976. No, no. You, you mentioned dialogue or bits of dialogue there a moment ago, and I just want to say this story has got Harry Sullivan as an imbecile. It's got, you know, careful I might explode when he gets <laughs> prodded when he's got the bombs trapped to him. If you were watching this series going out live in the mid-70s and not in love with Tom by this story, I don't think you'd have a pulse. There's just so much good stuff in it. Yes, that stuff in their very first scene where he says, of course, Carrie, you can have the tiring. You, you knew it would do that, didn't you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
that's just really, really funny. Um, the, the way he often goes in a different way that you would expect. The way he says, I think he's lying, is, is not the way you'd normally perform that line. And it works really, really well. I think Tom's in great form here. Really, really good form. Um, even just small stuff like he goes into the transmat starts playing with the yo-yo and when he arrives on Voga he's still playing with the yo-yo I just love little stuff like that yeah absolutely but he can still do the action beats really really well the scene at the start of episode 2 where Sarah has got the plague in inverted commas and he needs to transmat her down and he can't and he's got a jury rigger thing he, he puts real depth and urgency and concern into that performance so he's not doing it to the detriment of the gravitas of the script he's just throwing in light moments when they need to be light or when they can be light as you say Mm, and mentioning sarah being infected like that i want to bring up warner can i tell you i'm always surprised when warner dies in this story I'm, i'm always lulled into the idea that the doctor's got a solution and he's back and he's about to save warner and then when Warner dies, I am surprised every time I see this. Yeah, that's a really effective moment. And it also, for a story that does feel like one of the lighter ones in, in a quite grim season in some ways, it has grim moments itself. The moment where the, uh, the, the Michael Wisher voice over the radio is coming into the beacon and they say, no, we're in quarantine. He says, okay, understood. And then there's that pause and just, um, mate, how's my brother? Mm. And Warner's like, I'll check. That's a really quite a grim little moment. It's not overplayed. It's not as dark as some Hinchcliffe would become, but it, I think it does sell, though, that this is a, a very unpleasant place to be. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It almost reminds me of the scene in Mad Max where Max's wife and kid have been run over and the kid is dead and the wife is in hospital, obviously in a bad way. I think she's lost limbs. She's been run over by a whole motorcycle gang. And Max is listening at the door and the doctor is saying, you know, tell him she'll be all right. Tell him, you know, this, this, that, that and the other. And it's similar in this story. Like, oh, yeah, basically tell him, you know, everything's everything's fine sort of thing, even though clearly the guy is dead. Yeah. You know. Mm. Can I tell you about one of my favourite aspects of this story? Please. Jeremy Wilkins as Kelman. The guy is such a bastard. He is such a bastard, and he's having <laughs> such fun being a bastard. Uh, look, he's he's also plays a bastard in the very first episode of Blake Seven, and does it very effectively there as well. He, he clearly uh, gets cast as that kind of character quite a bit. the The way that he's just teasing and winding up the commander is really, really well done, and I love the commander's reaction to it. You know, best, some of my best friends are dead, but he's still alive. Yeah. I love all of that dialogue. I like the way that Kelman plays with the Doctor. I I love the way that he's just so annoyed that he's being interrogated by Tyrum. You know, Voris and I were working together. We were going to lure the Cybermen into a trap. You know, just very, very <laughs> frustrated. Um, it's a wonderful, fun performance to watch. But in the spirit of my on the one hand, but the other... Right. As much as I enjoy that performance, he's playing it as such a everybody look, this is the bad guy, this is a bastard, that when it turns out he and Voris, who also is playing the whole thing as a bastard, are actually the good guys, and twist, they're after the Cybermen too, it doesn't quite work. No, it doesn't. It, it really doesn't. It really, really doesn't. And, and look, I don't think that Kelman is the most altruistic of... Uh, off people, I don't think he necessarily came after the Cybermen out of the good of his soul. He just, no. you know, wanted the gold that Voris was buying him with. But 
I think it's meant to be a really profound, like, hey, we misjudged these guys and they're actually after the Cybermen and if we just got out of their way, the Cybermen would have been defeated. Yes, it would have cost the lives of the entire Nerva Beacon crew. Um, So, you know, he's not exactly innocent uh, and I don't think he's well motivated, but I don't think that lands as well as it could because they are just having such fun playing villains. Yeah, I mean, uh, this has just come to me. I mean, a decade later, we get the Doctor saying oh how much he's misjudged Lytton ironically in another Cyberman story yes that lands probably a bit better than this still not still not perfectly but it lands a lot better a decade later when they do something similar yes because I think Morris Coburn knows how the story is going to end and and allows a little bit of subtlety into his acting. And, yes. and look, I'm glad Jeremy Wilkins didn't because I love Kelman. He's such a fun character. But I, I don't think that lands in quite the same way as I think Tyrum is meant to be a much more ambiguous character. Like Tyrum mm. is actually in some way shown to be in the wrong. And his position is actually one that he's holding Voga back. And he's not in many ways a defensible position. And, and he is proven to be wrong by the end of the story. But... That doesn't land either because he's just playing such a sweet old lovely guy who's yeah. just, just so so nice and, and so you don't sort of get that ambiguity. Um, not to mention the fact that his mask just doesn't quite fit in the beard's not quite good. So you yeah. do get the iron tyrum, she's counselor of Zuga. So look, lovely performances, but I, I think some of the subtlety that I I'm sure is in the script doesn't quite come across. Yeah, I don't know whether it's Jeremy Wilkham or maybe it's Michael E. Bryant directing him just having this idea that because there is the twist, let's really amp it up that he's just so horrible because then the twist will pay off even more. But no, it doesn't work like that in reality. Yeah, yeah, no, look, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, Question without notice. How does this chunk of Voga, which is perhaps more like an asteroid these days floating through space, have air and gravity, Dave? Uh, A wizard did it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> good answer <laughs> very strange yeah. also very strange the seal of Voga is the seal of the high council we need to mention that well to be fair mm-hmm. the seal of the high council is the seal of Voga they got there first <laughs> true I wonder if Big Finish has done something with it yeah look I do I do I, well they probably have um, I think the fan <laughs> theory is that you know the Time Lords probably visited Voga at some point um, who knows mm, yeah a really cool moment done really terribly Yes. The cliffhanger to part one. Oh, okay. Look, I think that that is a wonderful, terrifying moment. Sarah being bitten by the Cybermat is really scary, really creepy. Yes. It's just really obvious that she's standing there holding the thing to her neck. <laughs> well, there's a lot of that acting in Doctor Who in general, isn't there? There, there not, is. Not just this story. <laughs> there is, absolutely. But I think that, um, I think that, that is a bit unfortunate. It's just... Very, very obvious. And and I think that last scene, it's kind of really obvious. There's somebody standing just off camera shaking the thing at her, um, uh, which is a shame because otherwise it would be, you know, it would, it would be up there as one of our, our correspondents on Twitter said. I think it would be up there with part one of Terror of the Zygons, the very next story where the Zygon comes in and attacks Sarah. I think it's a really good cliffhanger. But a- a- again, some of the shortcomings in the, in the production let it down, which is not a sentence we use a lot about Hinchcliffe. 
No, no, but I will mention when, when the people get infected by the cybermats, that effect on their face always used to fascinate me as a kid because even as a kid, I could see Doctor Who was low budget, you know, and the effects were quite hammy. You know, I was I was a kid who grew up on Star Wars, yeah. you know, for example. Yeah. So I could tell what was a great effect and what wasn't. But that effect, I could never work out as a kid how they did it. Mm. And it was actually reflective tape. Yeah, front actual projection, really, really cheap and easy. Yeah, amazing. But looks so effective. Yeah, it looks like, wow, what what is that? You know, it, it stands out as a really good effect. Yeah, so look, whilst I have absolutely picked on a few of the effects in this, some of them land really, really well. And, and look, Hinchcliffe presumably was finding his feet as a producer. And, you know, we can't judge Philip Hinchcliffe by his, you know, last season um, or even his second last season. He, he's allowed to get off the ground and revenge was shot a much earlier in the run than it, it looks because it was done back to back with ark in space yeah had to be yeah yeah so um it, it was one of his earlier things and he he was learning and look michael e bryant it was also a director who was really keen to innovate and try new stuff which means that when it works it works really really well when it doesn't it, it you know sometimes falls down but that's the price of taking a risk and i would much rather a director who takes a risk and he's trying to have a bit of flair that comes off 70% of the time and fails 30% than a director who's just shooting the script flat, you know, he should see shed back forth. Um, mm. You know, I'm really, really glad he did it. And it, it, it does pay off even if occasionally it does fall down. Something that doesn't fall down at any moment though is Tom. We just need to say again, how good is Tom in this season? Oh, early Tom Baker. Amazing. It is amazing. And we have spoken often about how a lot of doctors need time to really find the role. Many of them really need that first season to really be strong in the role. My God, Tom just walks into it, doesn't he? He does. Probably like no other. Maybe Hartnell's the only other one. And even he, although his performance is good, his character takes a season to really take shape. But Tom is just there from day one and he is magnetic to watch in this. Yeah, wonderful. Now, Dave, I want to talk music too. Carrie Blyton does the music here, and they really didn't like it, the production team. They had to go back and, and sort of redub in new bits of music to sort of flesh it out, apparently. Yeah, I was really interested to read that. And Philip Hinchcliffe definitely has said that he thought that Brian should have hired Dudley Simpson because Dudley Simpson just knew exactly what to do and it was really, really good. I, yeah. I think it's really good that they didn't. As much as I love Dudley Simpson, he has some wonderful scores, I am a big fan of the idea that you occasionally mix up the music and you occasionally mix up the styles, whether it's classic Who or new Who. I am in favour of occasionally someone different comes in and does something different. Rather than years of Murray Gold, Rather for than example. years of Murray Gold and the same for Dudley Simpson. I think that as great as Dudley Simpson is... When he's given a break, he often comes back with something really, really good. And also you get to hear a different thing. Uh, Jeffrey Bergen coming in and doing Terror of the Zygons next story is one of the best examples of that. But mm. I think the music here is actually really, really good. It evokes the Cybermen really, really well. It complements a lot of that great location work really, really well. I think that although the Cybermath prop is terrible the music that accompanies it is actually quite creepy and and mm -hmm. does go a long way to try and sell that that dodgy prop yeah well this is where i was going with this thought because i i watched the show and and knowing this i was listening to the music specifically 
And I was thinking, this can't all be redone stuff. This can't all just be inserts. Surely some of this is his stuff. Surely. And, and it's not bad. Yeah, you know, I, I think that it's one of those things where 40-something years ago, Philip Hinchcliffe thought this isn't as good as it could have been. Gee, I really wish Michael had hired Dudley Simpson. And, mm. and as the memory goes on, as he tells that story every couple of years for 40 years, you know, you know, reality starts to get, you know, not detached, but simplified and uh, i think oh. he's probably exaggerating a bit and his memory's probably cheating him a bit for sure because even i've seen a barry letts interview recently with regard to this and he's like oh well you know we brought the daleks back and they were so popular we thought what will we do next we'll bring the cybermen back and i'm thinking there's no way that happened there's no way the dalek story genesis went out and you thought oh well the reaction to that was good let's now make <laughs> revenge of the cybermen you would have made it long ago and made that decision long ago yet in the way he tells the story it's like oh it was a reaction to genesis being so popular it's like yeah no yeah. Uh, look look a lot of those guys have got really great stories from the, from the time but occasionally yes i think timelines get mixed up in their head and i think that the emphasis in memories gets uh exaggerated or diminished and i think in this case i think philip's memory of uh, how bad he thought the script sorry the uh, the score was probably has exaggerated itself over time in his head yeah and i've cited a letter from carey blighton to to hinchcliffe i think talking about the experience and it mentions things like they're apparently changing things up on him wanting different instruments so he was sort of reacting and maybe not doing his best work because of limitations they were putting on him both in terms of time and how they wanted things so it's maybe not all on him regardless you know i think they were mucking him around a bit well however the creative process worked i think the result was excellent yeah i think it's fine and and, and look maybe it is one of those cases where the creative tension wasn't fun for all the people involved but out of that did come actually a very good creative process and a very good creative result yeah i think so the cast here is very, very strong. If you looked at that cast list, you'll just go, this is one of the you know, most deep lists in, in Doctor Who. I mean, as you said, you've got Kevin Stoney, you've got Michael Wisher, you've got David Collins. The guys playing the Commander and Lester are both people who've been in Doctor Who before and are very good actors. Jeremy Wilkins is, is really, really good. They're not given, I don't think, as much to chew on here as, as perhaps was worthy of them. Um, but, but who cares? You know, it's a great cast. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Ronald Lee Hunt is Commander Stevenson. William Marlowe is Lester. That's right, yes. They're, they're quite a good team. I mean, Commander Stevenson, he's got nice, sensible slacks and shoes. Uh, <laughs> I always notice that. I always wonder why he's not wearing boots. He seems to be wearing, like, slip-on casual shoes. Which is, which is a very Michael E. Bryant thing, actually. He was sort of very big on the, I'm not going to try and predict the future. I'll just put them in something that's very close to modern day and even the use of the machine guns for example he's like i'm not going to use a bizarre space laser because that's just going to look dodgy in five years time give him a machine gun that doesn't date that's right they've got uzis yeah but this might also explain why they're also using a tape deck to record conversations and they can just pull tape out <laughs> to sort of you know to, to destroy the uh, the messages sometimes stuff like that i'm like oh guys could you not have thought of a better way yeah, look, that is something that has dated. But again, I forgive it because the way the Doctor just ingratiates himself into the story and into the crew by quickly spotting all these things that are going wrong and going, hang on, there are scratches there and the tape's been removed and the Commander's like, gee, this guy knows what he's talking about, okay. It's a really good and well-played scene and Tom plays it really well. So 
as as embarrassing as it is to see real to real tape. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. Well, look, you know, it's Doctor Who. Yeah, fair enough. Speaking of, did you watch this with the new effects or the originals? Original. Not through any sort of sense of, oh, I must watch the original. I just didn't even think to turn it over to the new effects, actually. Yeah, now, I don't think I have watched the effects before. I think when I first watched this, if I did watch it when I bought the season 12 Blu-ray, I may not have got got to it at the time. Uh, I didn't watch the effects because they were certainly new to me. And I was quite surprised by the, the depth and the detail of them. What a happens? Lot of, so, so as well as all the model shots are being done again, which is really, really effective, and the, the rocket does look much, much better than it does as a model, uh, lots of the scanner screen effects and the like have now been redone. So oh. all of those visuals do look a lot better, and that's actually quite quite effective. Oh, wow. After we record this, I'm going to go and actually watch it again. Mm. No, do, do. I think it's one of, the, uh, one of the most effective examples of new effects being put in, I've got to say. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, sometimes stuff like that is good. Like I think of um, when they redid Empire Strikes Back and in Cloud City, they just gave Cloud City some windows. Yeah. It, it took it away from looking like a set and made it feel more like what it was meant to be. So sometimes that subtle stuff, background stuff almost is very effective. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think it, it's really, really good here. Um, speaking of effects and props, as a kid, that yeah. James Bond, which I now know is from James Bond, the the, uh, the the hairbrush and the little thing and all the little gadgets that Kelman has. Oh, right. I yes. was so blown away by that. I think what, what sci-fi nerd kid doesn't love cool gadgets and the way that he pulled all that apart and assembled it all, I just thought was really, really effective. Um, and... No, it wasn't until recently I did learn that actually they were James Bond props that had just been given to them when he came to visit the set. <laughs> that's a great story. Because, yeah, when, when I watched it, I think, oh, that's very Bond-like. Well, clearly it's Bond-like if it was the real, the real thing. Yeah, yeah. So, Rob, look, in summary, I did find when I watched this, yes, there were some things that weren't as good as the memory perhaps said they were. There are mm. production things, there are design things, there are acting things that I think actually are weaker than the standard that this era has set for itself. And and is it unfair to judge an era by a high standard because it is better? Maybe it is, but it has set a high benchmark. It is recognised as one of the, if not the greatest, produced eras of Doctor Who. Mm. And occasionally the story, I have to say, does fall down in that aspect. I think I would be being deceptive if I didn't admit that. Do I care, though? Very clearly, I absolutely don't. I enjoyed watching this story. Most of the performances, the location filming, the ideas, the simplicity of it is all very, very welcome. And it's a very, very easy watch. It's it's not a expensive wine that you sit down and you sip and you nourish all the detail and you mm. indulge yourself in all the depth. It's a good table wine that you take a swig and you go... Yeah, this is going to go down really easily. I'll be going to finish the bottle. Exactly. exactly. I think you've summed it up very well there because like I've said all through this conversation, there are elements that give me pause. There are, as I've said, questions without notice. How, how does Vogue have air and gravity? You know, all of that sort of stuff. But put all that aside, it's a good fun story. The Cybermen have a target. They want to blow it up. And it's that good, simple story that I think just carries it through. I... I am quite fine with this and I, I do get a bit upset when I see things like the discontinuity guide just absolutely eviscerate it like it's the worst thing ever 
you know, committed to film. It's not. No, I think that the whole is absolutely greater than the sum of its parts, even if a few of those parts are a little bit weak. Yeah, agree. Well, that was our take on Revenge of the Simon. As always, do tweet us, write to us, email us, and let us know what you thought. Did you agree? Did you not, not agree? Are you sitting there bewildered? We didn't love it even more. Are you sitting there outraged and baffled? We didn't think it was terrible. Let us know. <laughs> Are we just in the sensible centre, as always? Well, we're at least in the honest centre, and uh, that's all you can ask. (laughs) Rob, speaking of feedback... Yes, we have feedback. I'll take the first one here, Dave. It's from Neil Campbell in Carrickfergus, Northern Ireland, a regular correspondent. Hello again, Neil. You're probably out running or doing the gardening or something like that, uh, as you often tell us. He says, lads, I'm thrilled you're going to be covering this story for your podcast, obviously, Revenge of the Cybermen. A story that often gets forgotten about due to the arc in space and genesis of the Daleks in season 12. What can I say about it? I absolutely love it. Now, I'll admit it's not a classic and it's not going to top all-time best story polls, but for me, it's a belter. Why, I hear you ask? Well, when I was a kid, I was born in 1988, my dad had some Doctor Who VHS tapes, and of course this piqued my interest. I really enjoyed the show and wanted more and more. I'll never forget the day my dad took me to the Virgin Megastore in Belfast and allowed me to pick my first ever Doctor Who VHS. This place was laden with options, but for some reason I chose Revenge of the Cybermen. I just like the cover of Tom Baker and a Cyberman, and the rest, as they say, is history. It's actually a decent story. It's adventurous. It has a strong cast, such as Kevin Stoney, David Collings, etc. And I love the music. I know it's not everyone's cup of tea, but I like its quirkiness. Totally different from previous musical scores. The exchanges between the Doctor and the Cyber Leader are very funny, and I love the Black Helmet, a first in Doctor Who. Some of the location work too is brilliant, and here, those mid-80s multicoloured BBC video idents with snazzy music. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I remember Ah, those. The nostalgia is flowing through my veins. I appreciate you're probably thinking I'm drunk on Mondaysi and Vino, but for me, it will always hold a special place in my heart, and thus it remains a nostalgic favourite of mine. Up the Vogons, great work as always. Fellas, cheers. Thank you for that, Neil. A really fun email to read. Look, I think we've agreed with a lot of what you said, but it is worth, I think, perhaps reiterating that there is very much a nostalgia factor running through this story as well that I think adds to the enjoyment for a lot of people, including, dare I say, us. Absolutely. Our second email is from a regular correspondent, Steve Pinozzo. Thanks again for writing in, Steve. And he's written in regarding a recent list makers. Yes. Great discussion on your top five target novelizations. I relate more to Rob's list than Dave's, but to be be honest, they're all worthy contenders. If I were to do the same, my list would have included a few random diversions, and not necessarily because of their literary value. Steve goes on to give us his list of top five target novelizations. At number one, The Deadly Assassin. I read this one cover to cover more than any other target book, mainly because it was the first book I bought and it hadn't been on TV. It had been banned and I loved the story, which explored all those details about Time Lord society for the first time. Mm-hmm. Number two, The Autumn Invasion, precisely for the reasons you outlined in the podcast. Mm-hmm. Number three, The Talons of Wang Chiang. We had overseas visitors in 1979, and I spied this in the bookshop at Sydney Airport, and it had yet to be screened in Australia. Oh, wouldn't that be awesome? It would be. A quick scan in the shop, who was Leela? I had to have it. 
Plus, the cover artwork by Jeff Cummings was beautiful, only to be eclipsed by his magnificent face of evil cover art. His work was inspirational. Number four, The Web of Fear, another story I'd never seen, with an awesome cover by Chris Achilleos, probably the second novel I bought. And number five, Genesis of the Daleks, a solid, descriptive piece of work by Terence Dix. It's a shame that this got overlooked by you guys, as it certainly was not part of the churn it out period. That came much later, around 1978-79, and affected stories such as The Robots of Death, Image of the Fendal, and Destiny of the Daleks. Probably the worst of Terence's hash jobs. Um, as an aside there, I have a friend who um, has said that he was able to finish Destiny of the Daleks completely in a trip to the gents. So um, uh, it certainly was quite slight. Um, yes. Back to Steve's email. Of course, there are others I came to appreciate later in life, but these were the ones that taught me new words, gave me magnificent quotes, and the cover art added to my list of artistic influences that have inspired and sustained me as a professional artist, possibly something that many people overlook. I have a lot to be grateful for, thanks to Target Books, Steve Panozzo. Look, excellent ideas then. There's no, nothing there that couldn't be on my list if it you know, it come to my mind. It's so hard, as we said on the podcast, to to pick top five target novelizations, and um, they're all worthy. Yeah, and I, I liked hearing about the artwork too. Something, I mean, all of us look at the cover art and can tell if we like it or not. You know, we, we all have opinions on art. But Steve is a professional illustrator, cartoonist, uh, caricaturist as well. And to hear his perspective about why he likes certain books for their cover art, I, I found quite interesting there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks as always for writing in. Mm, thank you. Now, Rob, we haven't spoken for a couple of months. We really haven't. Shall we do a quick What Have We Been Watching segment? I think that'd be fun. Well, look, I might dive in because I've done something millions of other people have done, mm-hmm. although I am a bit behind the curveball on doing it. I've watched Stranger Things. Yes, you have. I have been meaning to for quite a while. When the last season came out, season three, I, I meant to get on. I think I watched the first episode or two and then got distracted. But with all the hype over season four and a lot of people really enjoying that season, I thought... Now's the time to dive in. People at work watch it, so that was a good excuse as well. You were tossing up between two shows, weren't you? You were saying, should I watch Stranger Things or something the, else? The Umbrella Academy was the other the one. The Umbrella Academy, that's right. But everyone said Stranger Things. They did. That was that was pretty universal feedback. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I did. I watched the whole lot over about five weeks. Uh, I did seasons one, two, and three basically over a week each, which worked out quite well. And then season four took me a couple of weeks. Because that was quite long. Yeah, it was. Uh, but I've got to say, uh, just just to start at the end, the season finale of season four, which is two and a bit hours. Yeah. I must admit, I sat down on a Sunday evening and thought, right, let's start watching this. And in my mind, I'm going, how much can I break this up? Do I have to do it over two nights? Can I break it up over three? That'll be sort of be about 45 <laughs> minutes each. But as it went on, I've just gone, I can watch another half hour. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep going. And suddenly the whole thing had been gone by in one evening very, very easily. So it was very watchable. Look, I did obviously enjoy the series. The fact that I stuck through all uh, four seasons basically in one big go uh, demonstrates I did enjoy it. Season one was very, very strong, very, very interesting. Not quite what I'd expected it to be. Right. Um, a little bit different to what I expected it to be, which was interesting, but... Was it the horror element, or...? Yeah, I thought it was a little bit more sort of um, Stephen Kingy, a little bit more sort of like kids having yeah. fun riding around on bikes in the 80s, uh, right. which is, I think, something that a lot of people a little bit older than me 
have latched on to um, and, and, and really talked about but it didn't it didn't land as much for me and I was much more interested by the sort of the sci-fi horror aspects of it I thought was really really effective season two is probably my favorite of the lot so far I thought that that took the ideas of season one and really took them to another level really effectively for season two I enjoyed that uh, season three I know is a very divisive season amongst fans I've got friends who love it friends that hate it mm. uh, I fall in the hate it category um, wow. I just thought that didn't work at all there was lots of stuff that was dragged out there were lots of subplots that didn't work some characters I wasn't really invested in um, I didn't look look hate it's too strong a word I enjoyed it because I've enjoyed the whole thing but I did think it was much weaker than the others season four though definitely a return to form I get why everybody's raving about it the plot twists for me were probably the biggest and most effective plot twists since some of the stuff that I saw in Babylon 5. Some okay. of those twists where you just go, okay, I thought they were going in this direction. I saw some of this coming, but I didn't see this bit coming and I yeah. didn't see this bit coming. And even though it had all been laid out for me and all the pieces were there, it was still a surprise. I, I, had, I had working theories, some of which were right, some of which were wrong. And that's a really good place to be. I was blown away by some of those revelations. They were done really, really well. It's a show that a lot of my friends have loved, and, and not just friends in Doctor Who fandom. As I say, other friends who don't normally watch sci-fi, people at work really enjoy that show. And yeah, it hasn't been perfect. Um, I I think there are a couple of punches that it pulled that I wish it hadn't pulled on occasions. But yeah, I, I really quite enjoyed it. I am firmly on this bandwagon. Very good. Very good. What have you been watching, Rob? I've watched all sorts of things, Dave, and after we stop recording, I think, oh, geez, I should have mentioned X, Y, and Z because, oh, that was good and that was good and, oh, I really enjoyed this and people should know about it. But I'll just mention one thing here, and that's only murders in the building, which, like you coming to Stranger Things, maybe not to the same degree, but I came to this late as well because the first season had been out there and very well received and the second season was out there and mostly over before I thought, you know what, I should go and watch this thing. Because I love Steve Martin, I love Martin Short, and I always knew I'd want to watch this show. So when it popped up on Disney, because it's originally a Hulu series, and when it was on Disney+, Plus, and there was this buzz around the second series, I thought, I'm going to jump on this. And I did. And I watched it so quickly, I caught up to where the weekly episodes were dropping in season two, and actually oh, wow. got, to, got to see season two uh, week by week, the last few episodes, which was a lot of fun. And yeah, look, it's a show with mystery. It's a very funny show. I will say it took me a few episodes to get into. In the first season, I kind of liked what I was seeing in the first episode and I kind of liked what I was seeing in the second episode and again in the third episode I was like I kind of like this but I'm not quite on board but in episode four bang it just all clicked into place I thought this show's great and I loved the hell out of the the rest of that season the second season was even better which follows on directly from the first season something happens in the last couple of minutes of the first season which then forms what the second season is about and they've done that again at the end of the second season the final bit is like what the third season will be and it's just clever funny marvelous tv i recommend it to anyone i think this has been a bit of a sleeper because since you mentioned it a few weeks ago i've seen several other people on social media make similar comments so i think it is one of those ones that didn't make a big bang when it dropped but word of mouth is slowly getting out there and um 
yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll have a look at it as well if I get a moment. Because, yeah, look, as you say, who doesn't like Steve Martin? Yeah, exactly. Well, look, I think it's because it was a Hulu thing. But now that it's Disney+, Plus, more people have got that. I mean, it's the same with the, the Marvel shows that um, Netflix made, like Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage. They had a certain following on Netflix, but now that they're on Disney+, Plus, there are people seeing those for the first time going, oh my God, these are amazing. So these things do have life after people have binged them years and years ago. No, that's very true. That's a really good point. Yeah. Well, it's time to wrap up. Uh, as part of a wrap-up, I just want to give a plug for the latest episode of the 42 to Doomsday podcast, which I guested on. We uh, had the, uh, the chaps around to my place here, and we did a, one mm-hmm. of our Christmas episodes. This case, In this case, a Christmas recorded in July, released in August. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, because I... Look, look, I, I must admit, having edited a few of the live conversations we've done for the Doctor Who show, mm. they are a long edit because we do... We do go wildly off topic and have, have quite a few giggles and um, occasionally say things that are heavily libelous and need to be cut out. <laughs> um, but look, Be we, thankful we do edit people. Yeah. You know, some podcasts don't. No, absolutely, shows. absolutely, no. Um, so look, yes, do check out the latest 42 to Doomsday where we had a really good, fun chat that I guested on. But mm. next month, Rob, we are going to be back. We yes. are due to read a book. Once a year or so, we read a book. As a, yes. as a part of our deep dive into all things Doctor Who. And you suggested, and I didn't need to be persuaded, that we should read Slipback. Yes. This is one of these times where I sit here and think, what do I not hear Doctor Who fans talking about all that much? What have I not heard a podcast do before? And I cannot recall the last time I saw someone mention on social media Slipback or that I've heard any of the podcasts I listen to, or at least keep tabs of on social media, do an episode on Slipback. So I think it might be something that people might be interested in hearing about. Yes. Now, question without notice, Rob. Yes. As well as reading the book, which we will be doing, will you be listening to the radio version as well, or are we going to go in completely cold, just do the book? It's an interesting question. I mean, it, it it's probably on YouTube, isn't it, right? You know, to get the audio. I don't own it on any sort of media like cassette or anything like that, but I'm sure I can get a hold of it on YouTube. I think I'll read the book first, and then if I've got time, listen to the audio. Okay, I'll do the same thing. Okay. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah, because it was originally a radio play, if people aren't familiar with it at all. Yes, that's right. But look, I haven't read the Target novel before, so I'm going in completely, well, not completely blind, because I obviously have listened to the radio show many decades ago. Right. Um, But I've not read the Target novel yet, so I'm going in in clean. (laughs) A clean skin, Dave. Yes, yes. Interesting. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to it for that reason. I'm looking forward to it for giving our listeners something a bit different that maybe they've never come across before. Oh, it's going to be good fun next month. Yeah, look, I'm looking forward to it. So next month, we are reading Slipback. Feel free to read it yourself before the conversation if you've got a copy. But as always, join it. But look, I think we're done. We are done. We are done. It's good to be back. Thanks again to Dylan for looking after the seat while I've been away. We will be back, obviously, with a primary sources and a list makers over the next month. But until Mm -hmm. then, I've been Dave. And I've been Rob. And we will speak again soon. Goodbye. Goodbye. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show with Rob and Dave. Find us online by searching for The Doctor Who Show 
We also love it when you write in. Drop us a line anytime at hello at the dwshow.net.